If you don't have deep, deep feelings for each other, what's life about? If you're always afraid to feel deeply because you're going to lose somebody, then you're missing out on life. You have to feel deeply and then do the grieving necessary when the bonds are broken. That was the voice of Maury Schwartz, the Maury of Tuesdays with Maury. I am Mitch Album, the author of Tuesdays with Maury, and the host of this podcast, Tuesday People, which is inspired by the lessons learned alongside my old professor 25 years ago that turned into the book Tuesdays with Maury, lessons that still resonate today with many people around the world who are reading or studying that book and certainly resonate with me as I have tried to live my life by those lessons ever since hearing them alongside Maury as he died slowly from Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. Alongside, as always, is my friend and producer of the program, Lisa Goich. Lisa, good to see you again. Hi, Mitch. And you're doing well, feeling well? Yes. Getting all those nice Get Well Soon cards from our listeners on uh, WeTuesdayPeople.com. I love our We Tuesday People. <laughs> well, today is a uh, is going to be a very uh, special Tuesday podcast because we're going to welcome a guest in, David Kessler. And uh, David is one of the most well-known experts and lecturers on death and grieving today. He's reached so many people through his books, uh, perhaps most notably on grief and grieving, finding the meaning of grief through the five stages of loss. If you say, wait a minute, that sounds a little familiar, five stages. Well, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who came up with the five stages of uh, dealing with death and dying, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, you've probably heard of those, and she became very famous with that book on death and dying. Well, David worked with her on his book and, and, and that they did together, and then another one after that, spent a lot of time with her, has helped thousands of people around the world uh, deal with life, death, and how to deal with the two of them with peace, dignity, and courage. He's worked with the Red Cross Mental Health Disaster Team and police departments and trauma teams and, and, and many, many people who have faced life-challenging illnesses. And he has a new book, which kind of continues on that one that I mentioned before on Grief and Grieving, Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief. And we want to welcome David Kessler to Tuesday People. Hi, David. Hey, Mitch. Hi, Lisa. Such an honor to be with you. Well, Hi, it's a pleasure, pleasure to have you on, David. And I understand that we have one of those sort of uh, karma moments that connect us, even though we're sort of meeting for the first time here. Lisa informed me of it. So back when Tuesdays with Maury first came out, which was 1997, uh, it was a very, very small book with no following whatsoever. Nobody expected it to... Uh, do well in any way. Uh, it was just this tiny little book that I wrote to pay Maury's medical bills. And it came out in August of 1997. Not exactly a hot time to release a book. And uh, it just sort of, you know, came out. And then slowly people started to read it and pass it on and pass it on and pass it on. Uh, still, you know, it was just sort of gathering kind of a buzz, but but, you know, in a very, very small way. And probably a thing that put us over the top at the beginning in terms of people finding out about this book was when I got a call from Oprah Winfrey's show asking me if I could do five minutes on the program on a show that they were going to have Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, your co-author on several of your books. 
And of course, I said, sure, you know, I'll do it. And we drove out to Chicago and, and did five minutes on the show, which I'll tell you about later because they were funny five minutes. But those five minutes probably brought more attention to Tuesdays with Maury at the very beginning and kind of got it in front of a lot more people. Well, so it turns out, now correct me if I'm wrong, David, you were actually scheduled to be on the show that day? Right. So they were doing this show with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and I was going to be her protege, one of her protégés carrying on her work. And I had a new book, my first book at the time, called The Needs of the Dying. It had just been praised by Mother Teresa, and they were like, oh, it's going to be a whole wonderful show about death and dying. And then at a certain point, I got a call saying they went another direction. They didn't want it to be all about just, you know, Elizabeth and I. They wanted to focus on Elizabeth. And there's another book that Oprah was really loving that they thought would fit in better. Huh. And, of course, that was your book. So I basically, <laughs> I basically owe you a 25-year-old apology. No, you don't. You know, it's interesting. People would say to me, well, how do you feel about him? I said... No one did anything. I mean, you know, there's plenty of times I probably get something that someone else had. I mean, that's right. kind of how the media world works. So, and of course, I read Tuesdays with Maury and loved it and loved you and have never had anything but amazing feelings for you. And, well, and I went on to have my Oprah moment, so all is well. There you go. So eventually <laughs> in time, if you live long enough, everyone gets an Oprah moment. And I'm so glad that that ultimately worked out. I had no idea. Of course, this is literally the first I'm hearing of that. When they called me, I just thought I was an add-on. Uh, I thought uh, it was the end of the show. They had done the first 55 minutes with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And I, I didn't know a whole lot about Oprah Winfrey or the show or anything like that at the right. time. My wife knew a lot more than I did. And I just went and, uh, you know, went, did the thing. And the funny thing about it is, and I'm sure when you did her show, it was probably the same thing. I'm not a particularly tall guy. You know, I'm, I'm five foot eight in, in shoes. And when I walked out onto that stage, and I had never done a show of that size or anything like that. And so they're talking to you uh, backstage. Say, okay, you're going to go out. You're going to take a left turn. You're going to go around the corner. You're going to sit in that chair, whatever. And, and blah, 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 go. You know, and it's all done in real time. Even though it's taped, it's done in real time because they, they tape it to the commercial. So you don't have a lot of time to mess around. And I walk out there and I go out and, and I get into this chair and sit back, and my feet do not touch the ground. And so the whole interview, I have no idea what I said, because I all I can tell you is my thought was, oh, my God, please let my feet touch the ground. I'm sliding back into the chair as deep as I can. I'm, I'm leaning all the way back with my arms over the side, and she's talking, and I'm like, let my feet touch the ground. I don't want to look like Edith Ann from Laughing, you know, the little girl in the, in the chair. Uh, and so I, I sweated so much during that show because I was nervous about how I would look like a fool that I remember I was only on for five minutes, but I sweated through my suit. Like I, like I had st a stain in, on my 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 uh, well, actual jacket. So lucky for you, none of that showed for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I'm just saying it was a hot seat, David. Uh, so you right, weren't missing right. anything. Literally, maybe they uh, maybe they got bigger chairs by the time you got out there, or smaller chairs by the time you got out there. But but anyhow, we are connected, and it's a funny the way that you find things out this way, and it's it's a delight right. to finally 25 years later give you the proper stage and 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 ask you the questions and this is such a valuable book uh finding meaning the sixth stage of grief and we are you and i 
united in something else now in that we've right. lost children. Right. I you you I lost Chica, our little girl from Haiti, when she was seven years old, and you lost your twenty-one-year-old son, which helped inspire this book. Tell us about that, please. Sure. Well, let me connect first back to Elizabeth Kubler Ross. One of the things her and I would always say, and I always want to use this as a chance to clear this up: the stages are not a map for grief. You don't have to follow them. They're not linear. There's no one right way to grieve. I always like to put that out front. So obviously, I've worked in this field for 40 years and six books and, you know, was a grief specialist. And then out of the blue, my younger son, David, died unexpectedly at 21. I was thrown into the epicenter of it. And I wanted to write a note to everyone I had counseled saying I had forgotten how bad the pain was. Hmm. Because I think, you know, you can know about this work and do this work, but it's different than feeling the pain of it. And I had gotten into this work because when I was a child, my mother had died at 13 and there was a mass shooting that happened, one of the first mass shootings in the U.S. And it changed the trajectory of my life. But I had not felt intense grief for decades, even though I worked with so many people who did. Mm. So as you know, it just goes into the core of you. And as I began to feel and deal with it in that couple of years when I began to think about, I've got to accept this loss, I suddenly went, acceptance wasn't enough. I needed more. I just couldn't accept it. I wanted to find meaning. And I started doing research and interviewing people who their spouse had died, their parent had died, um, a child had died about how they went through the pain and experienced the pain fully, but in time, in their own way, found ways to connect to meaning again. And so the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross family and foundation was so gracious to give me permission to add a sixth stage to her iconic stages. And that became the book, Finding Meaning. Hmm. What have you found in talking to all those people that is perhaps universal or close to universal in how they dealt with their loss? I think that in our modern world, we talk so much now of post-traumatic stress and about how wounded we can be from life. And life is certainly painful. What I found is that post-traumatic growth is actually more common than post-traumatic stress. And that meaning is not an extraordinary thing. It's an ordinary thing that's available to all of us. You know, I went back and researched Viktor Frankl's work from the Holocaust and saw that meaning is possible. And, And I think the other thing is one of the myths that people get confused about is they think I might be saying there's meaning in the death. There's not meaning in a child dying. There's not meaning in a terrorist attack or a pandemic. But meaning is what we do after. Meaning is what we do to honor the person. Man's Search for Meaning is a very famous book that you referenced by Viktor Frankl, which chronicled his experiences in the Nazi concentration camps, although, as as I recall, he himself was not there for very long. Uh, but he talked about how people who went through that experience were able to find, as you point out, 
it's not extolling the experience, but they were able to find meaning in the post experience of it uh, that enabled them to sort of put it in, I don't know, perspective is not the right word, but fit it into their life. Because if you, perhaps you found this the same thing, David, as I did. When we first lost Chica, there was no fitting that grief into our life. It consumed us. It it was like someone threw a huge blanket over us. The light of the world was blocked out. The breath of the world was denied us. It was suffocating. And it, it didn't matter who came in or who tried to say what. It didn't matter if the sun was out. It didn't matter if it was a nice day. It didn't matter if someone liked something you did at work. Nothing mattered. It was it was just shadow. And you couldn't shake this. The, the only time you escaped it is when you went to sleep. And sometimes even your dreams were haunted. And then you wake up in the morning, and maybe you had a half-decent night's sleep, and then your first thought is, oh, she's gone. She's still gone. And that there was no meaning in that. That was just just right. crazy, you know, just like I say, a blanket. But as the years have passed, um, and there haven't been many, I mean, it's only been three, but you start to, it starts to shrink down that you can almost put your arms around it and say, okay, where am I going to have to place this in my life for me to go on? Is this a, is that a, a fair sort of way of describing what you're, it's what you're getting? It's a very accurate way of describing it. The only thing at the end... I would invite you to consider that I've learned in this work and through my own experience, our grief actually doesn't get smaller. We have to become bigger. Mm. We have to grow around it. Mm. The grief of my son and or Maury or Chica or anyone who's listening, that grief doesn't go away. There's always a hole in our heart, but we have to become bigger we have to build our life around it and find a way to honor that person. And I, you know, sometimes people go finding meaning. Well, that's, you know, I'm just going to jump to meaning. No, you've got to, just like you said, you've got to go through that dark night. Mm -hmm. There's no getting around it. That's just what grief feels like, but there is more. That's what I want people to know. There is more. When people are going through that grief, the painful part, the immediate, the immediate stuff that comes after, is there anything that you can say to them here on our program about how to keep it from not only just overwhelming them, but from snuffing out their own hope for anything good happening later on in life? Well, I can tell you what I say in those moments. In those moments when I'm sitting with someone, I have to realize I can't take away their pain. Their pain is the love. I, I, it's not my place. I want to give them the dignity of their pain. So I can't take it away. I can't use a phrase to make it better or any of the slogans or things we say to people in grief. I can only sit with them. And when they can't see that hope, I can either say or think, depending on whether it's appropriate, even though you have lost your hope, and I get that's what grief feels like, I can hold hope for you until you can find it again. Hmm. The loss of your loved one, unfortunately, is permanent. But your loss of hope is temporary. And I'll sit with you and be with you in your pain. And hopefully also when you can find that hope again. 
How much do you give uh, credence to time and and the fact that I've always marveled at it as as someone who has had like you to deal with many many people who are grieving because when you when you write Tuesdays with Maury and it gets to as many people as right, possible, right. you become everybody's rabbi. You know, everybody right. wants to tell you a sad story. Right. And one of the things I've learned in my, you know, okay, what am I going to say to people? I get asked this all the time, is that time is the most amazing invention of, of God. You know, that, that there's something that time does that nothing else can do. No sentence, no, no book, no counselor, no, no therapy, no anything. There's just something with the passage of time, the turning of the pages, that has a, a healing type of effect. And you have to believe almost in time as an entity, uh, as, as something that's more than just a, a clock ticking, but that there is, there's almost medicine inside time. Uh, is that a thought that you have come upon? And if so, how have you related it to your to the people in your life? I'll tell you how it works and how it goes wrong. I can remember when my own father was dying years ago, and he said to me, David, time heals all. I didn't know what he meant. And I was amazed, just like you, that it turned out to be true. There is something magical about time. We live in time, we walk in time, we grow and we change in time. What goes wrong about time is when people put grief on a timeline, mm -hmm. and there is no timeline. And if you go up to someone who's newly in grief, and you're trying to make them feel better, and you're trying to minimize their feelings, and you say to them, don't be sad, time heals all, then it backfires big. Right, right. You know, I, I, want, I want to follow up on their grief. I want to follow up on that because this is something I think that's very important for people to hear, and you would know maybe more than almost anyone. When you encounter someone who has had a major loss, a loss of a child to me is, is, is at the top of that heap, uh, but obviously loss of a longtime partner or spouse, uh, you know, even loss of parents. What are the do's and don'ts of what someone who's trying to be good and trying to be comforting should say or should stay away from? Well, two things. First of all, just what you were saying is such an important point about the different losses. People always ask me, which is the worst loss? Is it a child? Is it a, is it a, a spouse for 40 years? Is it a pet that you've been with every day for 20 years? And I always say the worst loss is your loss. Right. Whatever your loss is, is the worst loss. And there's no comparing in grief. Because if you win, you lose. Now, in terms of the things to say, what aren't helpful is to try to point out the silver lining to people. Oh, at least they died quickly. At least they're not sick anymore. Anything that begins with the word at least <laughs> is going to be minimizing. So I tell people our job is to witness their pain and witness their grief and to say, I can't make this better but I love you and I'm here with you. Those are such wise words and they're so short. Uh, and, and, and I think that people, you're right, people would welcome that kind of honesty because right. uh, it's painful to watch people struggle to try to say something to you when you know there's nothing that they can say that's going to make it better. And they twist themselves. You know, at least you had, 
your husband for so many years. Mine died after, you know, <laughs> sister. I only got 32 years with my husband. You got 41. You should be happy. I mean, some of the most foolish things are uttered in good intended moments. Uh, but I've seen people lose friendships over that type of stuff. And so I think that less is more approach that you say is, is great. I always say to people, listen, I, I've dealt with a lot of this and I've only learned one thing. There is no magic sentence. I cannot tell you anything that's going to make this go away and neither will anybody else. If words could do it, we, they would have been patented a long time ago. Uh, but, you know, we're here which is a derivative version of, of what, what you said, maybe not as eloquent. Uh, but, you know, make yourself known that you're here, and that's it. You know, join the basically the chorus of the show and, and wait for the time that they come to you and say, you know, hey, I want to spend some time with you. I need a diversion. I need to, you know. And, and, and then to follow up on that, when they do reach out, is it important to not necessarily make every conversation about the the loved one? You know, like to, to, to remember that sometimes what you need as you're dealing with grief is a diversion as opposed to, okay, so the person's willing to, you know, they call you up, they're willing to talk, but people feel compelled to then talk about your loss. Is That's not always the right thing to do either, right? I always say take your cues from the person. You know, and sometimes, just like you said, I might say to them, listen, I, I, you know, I'm here. I love you. If you want to talk about sports, we can talk about sports. If you want to talk about Chica, we can talk about Chica. Whatever you want, I'm here. You know, we can go to lunch. We can take a walk. And just let them know you're willing to go to the sadness, but you don't have to. Right. Let them be the guide. What, what in the case of your 21-year-old son, in the process of grieving for him, what gave you the most comfort? What started to pull you back into the world? So two things. One, a dear friend called me up and said early on, I know you're drowning and you are going to drown for a long time. And at some point you're going to touch bottom. And when you touch bottom, this was an amazing woman, Diane Gray, you're going to touch bottom. She had been a bereaved mother. She is a bereaved mother. She said, you're going to touch the bottom and you have a decision to make. Do you swim again or stay there? And I think when we talk about meaning to just understand, we all consciously or unconsciously have to make a decision if we're going to live again. And so that was important to me. The other thing that was important to me when I looked at my son, when he was in kindergarten, they give out an award for everyone now. Right. And he got the award in kindergarten for most likely to become a helper. And in life, he never got to become that helper. In death, I hope with this book, he'll get to be that helper for so many people. Mm. Mm. That would be a, a great legacy. Uh, the book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, is David Kessler's latest work on this. As I mentioned before, he has has written uh, numerous books and become quite an expert on this and has worked with what many consider to be sort of the kingpin of, of, of death and dying and, and grief and grieving, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. What can you tell us about her? Uh, you know, I only met her in passing on that one particular show. I, of course, read her books. Uh, what 
what did she what insight did she bring to things that that made her sort of uh tap into what of course the now famous denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance which you have pointed out and thank you for doing so is not a roadmap. It's not number one denial. And then you say, well, when am I going to be done with denial right, so I can right, get to anger? Right. When am I going to be done with anger so I can get to bargaining? It doesn't work like that. But still, to even have come up with that kind of labeling and concepts took a, a, a unique perspective. Tell us a little bit about Elizabeth Kubler Ross. She was so insightful. There's, there's something about her. She saw a different part of the world that sometimes we don't see. It was always amazing to be in her presence. You know, I sort of was with her in her last years in many ways. I sat there and learned from her, perhaps the same way you did from uh, Maury. And she had an honesty that could upset you or inspire you. She Mm. didn't have a lot of filters. She was fearless. She was just a groundbreaker. And the thing that the obvious thing she did that's going to sound so simple is she listened. She could hear and listen to someone like no one you've ever seen. Hmm. It was quite remarkable. So I can understand how, and she used to always talk about the dying are our teachers. People in grief are our teachers. And she learned from them. Do you need to, along those lines, in your opinion, have gone through loss yourself before you can really be empathetic to someone else's loss? I don't think so. I, I, you know, one of the things I think about is I teach people to have security in their loss. You know, I, I, I look, you and I are both bereaved parents now. I will never know what it's like to have a Chica die. You will never know what it's like to have a David die, even though we've had the same loss. At the same time, when someone says to me with the pandemic, oh my gosh, I'm so sad that I had to cancel my wedding. It doesn't take away from my loss. And I can imagine this, you know, 20-year-old girl who's been dreaming about her wedding since she was five, five, and I can have empathy for her. You know, empathy is sort of a muscle that we use with other people. It's sort of knowing that maybe we haven't felt their sadness, but their sadness is still perhaps their worst sadness. You mentioned coronavirus and COVID-19, what we're living with. What advice can you give for those who are listening to us who may have lost a loved one or be losing a loved one in a world where you can't have contact or even necessarily conversations with them? Uh, Sometimes they go into the hospital with a cough and next thing you know, they're on a ventilator. Uh, This has become a very real problem for 150,000 families now and, and counting, uh, what, what advice can you offer them? Well, a couple of things. One, after COVID really hit here in the U.S., people were writing and saying exactly what you said, and also that their grief group was canceled. So I started an online grief group that a thousand people showed up for the first day. And it's now in the thousands. So many who have, just like you said, their loved ones died of COVID and they feel very unwitnessed, and they feel unseen. Because I want you to think about this. The number of people who have died, that's really just a number on our TV screen and in our newspaper, and once in a while we see a story. That's the equivalent to over a 1,000 planes crashing in the last six months. 
can you imagine what we would visually see if a thousand planes actually crashed and there were all those funerals? Mm. But because there's not, that grief has gone unwitnessed and they're in enormous pain. And I think we have to find a way to see them and to act on their behalf. Especially because it's not going away. Uh, this is for all it's we know. It's not going away. It's not going away. And in the grief group, you see them. My goodness, you see pictures and you see what they're going through. And by the way, any of your listeners who may have had a loved one die and don't have a grief resource right now, they can find the grief group at grief.com and it's completely free for anyone who's had a loved one who's died if they're needing support now. And the other thing I want to mention, if any of your readers are moved to get the book Finding Meaning, go to grief.com and I also have a free seven-part class for them that I want to give them to. Because it's really, it's a tough time to be in grief. As you know, grief is isolating and hard in a normal world. It's brutal right now. Right. It absolutely is. And, uh, you know, it also, there's also the question of perspective with grief, because at a time when the world is, seems to be flipping on itself, so many issues are all red hot and, and dialed up to 11, and then you wonder where your own personal grief fits in it. And it leads me to a question that I wanted to ask you as well, which is another part of the grieving process. How do you separate grief and guilt? And when I ask you about guilt, I ask in two forms. One, guilt that people have when someone dies that they somehow did not spend enough time with them or live up to their expectations or disappointment to them or, or something along those lines. And then the second part, guilt over when time passes and they find themselves no longer weeping every day or no longer having every minute shadowed by it, and they start to feel guilty about, I'm, I'm starting to forget, or I'm, I'm not as, I, I, should be, I should be crying, I should be remembering. Uh, how do they deal with that? Two separate kind of sides of the same coin. Sure, but very good questions about that. So first of all, there's a healthy guilt we all have. I mean, none of us knew the exact moment our loved one was going to die, God, would none of us got a lot of notice that on this day they would die. So it leaves us all wanting more, all wish we had been better people. And if we can use that for fuel to become better people, that will honor them. The other thing you mentioned is we're left with a lot of what ifs and regrets and if onlys. And we have to work through them because we're not very kind to ourselves in grief. I mean, I would never talk to you in grief the way I might talk to myself in grief. Right. So we don't know how to have kindness towards ourselves. The other thing I would tell people is death is so out of our control that when something big like death happens, our mind, our primitive mind wants to find control. And it goes, oh, if only I had gone five minutes early. Oh, if only we had brought them to the doctor sooner. All those things our mind does. Because our mind would rather feel guilty than helpless. And mm. so the guilt becomes a distraction from the grief. And so we have to help people work through that. The last part of your question is around disloyalty. You know, 
In the Jewish religion, as you know, and in many other religions, there was a time people wore black for a year. Right. And at the end of that year, you know, you can read about widows throwing off the widow's weeds. And at that point, you could continue to wear black, but the rabbi or leader or someone would tell you, you now at the year point have permission to live again. We don't have that moment. No one knows if it's okay to fully live again. So, for example, you know, when we laugh again, when we smile again, we feel like, is this okay? Am I being disloyal? And we also have other people's judgment. You know, I'll give you an example. You know, when I was doing lectures before the virus hit and all that, there'd be brochures and people would see a picture of me smiling and we would actually get emails going, I can't believe he's smiling. First of all, he's a grief expert. Second of <laughs> all, I know what happened to his son. Right. He shouldn't be smiling. Oh, so there's some underlying belief that when a loved one dies, you should never be happy again. And it's a myth. You know, my smile, my son loved my smile. My smile honors my son. He would never have wanted his death to take away my smile. Hmm. So we have to get to the purity of that and not the noise. Really, such such insightful uh, answers and, and such good advice. Uh, I hope everyone who's listening is embracing uh, these different things because grief is, 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 is so intangible in many ways, and yet there are ways to speak about it and to act on it that are tangible and are real. And uh, what you're hearing from David Kessler here is exactly that. And and anyone who has gone through it knows how at certain moments you desperately want an act or a philosophy or something to just hang on to, to feel like you know, you're in this ocean of, of, of emotion. Um, and if you can just hold on to something and ride it through, you feel like you have some kind of compass. And I, I believe you're providing a lot of that here, not only in this conversation, David, but in, in your books and, and most definitely in the new one, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. When you talk about uh, your smile, I'm actually looking at a photo of you as we're uh, speaking of you with Mother Teresa when you're smiling then as well, and, and I believe holding her hand or kind of close to her anyhow. Um, tell us what she was like. I mean, not very many people you get to talk to have met Mother Teresa, uh, and what what light did you see in her, if if any, that, that made her so unique from everybody else? Well, I'll tell you the interesting thing. We've all experienced you've been with another person who's maybe next to you in line at the store, and you can feel them really angry. Like the anger, the pain, the upset comes off of them. Or you've been with someone who's in pain, you feel their pain. When I was with Mother Teresa, unlike any other human being I've been with, I could feel the happiness radiating off of her. Hmm. It was quite extraordinary to feel that. The other thing that was really surprising to me is the last time I saw her uh, and I was saying goodbye to her, she turned to me and looked me in the eyes and said, please pray for me. And I, I said, well, of course I will. And there's another part of my mind that went, Mother Teresa wants me to pray for her. My goodness, she's got the Pope. She's got millions. <laughs> and then I realized in her eyes, all our prayers are the same. Right. Wow. So she what, was extraordinary. What part have you and found? And Mitch, Mitch, 
was short. <laughs> you and I are tall next to Mother Teresa. Really? We are so, tall men. <laughs> so she never should have done the Oprah show with those chairs. Uh, maybe that's why she stayed no, away I'm from No, I'm sure it. they had a riser for her or something. Yeah. Um, what part have you found faith plays in dealing with grief? I think it's a lot of our foundation. I think that, you know, we all do religion differently. I think for some, there's so much power they can find in their rituals and in their religion that comforts them. And interestingly enough, even when I work with people who are perhaps atheists, people think, oh, well, they can't find meaning. But interestingly enough, they have meaning, they just don't attribute it to God. So I do find whether it's no matter what your religion is, meaning kind of cuts across it, that we can all find meaning. And meaning doesn't take away the pain, but it gives you a cushion. Well, these are all just uh, wonderful things and and, and great advice uh, for people to listen to. I'm so glad that we were able to connect with you, David. Uh, First of all, to apologize for taking a seat (laughs) 25 years ago, and more importantly, to get to know you a little bit all these years later. Uh, The latest book, again, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, that goes along with many other books that uh, David wrote and some along with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on grief and grieving, of course, being a famous one. But there are many. Please look it up, grief.com. And Lisa was wondering, how does someone get the website grief.com? You must must have been one of those guys with an AOL account, uh, and and your your email was davidnumber1 at aol.com, because (laughs) grief.com. It was. It was long ago. It was long ago. Mitch, I yeah, want to say one gold. last thing to you. <laughs> sure. I, it's, yeah, it's been extraordinary. And there's lots of free resources there for people. So I want to just say we live in such a grief illiterate world. And Mitch, through your books, you have helped us become so more literate around the topic of grief and dying. So I want to thank you. Well, I, I sure appreciate that. And I hope we can have you back on our show sometime soon. Uh, You have so much wisdom to share. David Kessler, thank you for being on Tuesday, people. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you, David. And we will see you all uh, in a week. Until then, uh, stay healthy, stay well, and see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to Tuesday, people. To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday people.